you're on a spaceship flying through outer space at a speed of 180,000 miles per second. This is almost the speed of light. Make yourself comfortable, because the voyage is going to be long. It will last a little more than 90 years. It's better to use a cryo capsule to not get bored. In short, you need to fly for almost a century at the speed of light to get to a mysterious exoplanet that scientists have recently discovered. They have found many planets in the last few years, but this one can help in the search for extraterrestrial life. The planet looks like a dark blue ball and has a complex technical name consisting of letters and numbers. It's about the size of Neptune and orbiting around a little star of Class M, or in simple words, around a red dwarf. The planet is eight times closer to its star than Earth is to the Sun. But this doesn't mean that fiery layers of magma cover the surface of this world. The temperature on this exoplanet is pretty low, and similar to Earth's. That's because the red dwarf is not as hot as our Sun. But the most exciting thing is that the atmosphere of this space object consists of water vapor, or helium, or helium-hydrogen. Scientists don't know for sure, so they actively observe it. But if there is water in its atmosphere, then life can exist. It's unlikely we will discover some big creatures, but even microscopic bacteria would be a big sensation. Another reason why scientists keep their eyes on this planet is its origin. If they find out what the planet's atmosphere is made of, they'll understand how such objects can form around red dwarfs. This will be another little brick of understanding of how the universe works. Even if they discover life on this strange planet, it will be impossible to transport it from there for us to study. Fortunately, there's another massive object near Earth where microbes can live, and it's located inside our solar system. In 2020, scientists detected a strange gaseous substance in Venus's atmosphere. These were chemical residues of phosphine. This is a significant finding because phosphine exists on Earth near some microbes. They've recently discovered phosphine in penguins' bodies. Many people started to put out theories that these animals came to us from Venus. But, of course, this is not true. You can also find this substance among swamps and mud. So it was a big surprise when they found residual phosphine parts on another planet. It's weird, since life on Venus's surface most likely cannot exist. The temperature and pressure on the planet are just too high. But high up in the sky of Venus, the conditions are not so terrible. Perhaps some microbes live there. But scientists also know that volcanoes often erupt there. A chemical trace of phosphine may appear as a result of these eruptions. If this is the real reason for the appearance of phosphine, they probably won't find any life. Now they're spending a lot of money on the study of this planet. But let's go back to deep space. Over the past 20 years, scientists have been finding exoplanets far and not too far from us. Some of them orbit around dwarfs and big stars, but some planets exist entirely alone. They don't belong to the orbit of any star. They are abandoned in cold outer space. Another exciting thing is that scientists haven't found a planetary system similar to our solar one. All distant exoplanets are located at different distances from their stars. Their sizes and masses are not like those that our planets have. We call them exoplanets since they're beyond our solar system. Some other fascinating space objects are super-Earths. If some planet weighs from 2 to 10 Earth masses, is 2 times bigger, and gets energy from a star, it's called a super-Earth. 
no more similarities with our home. Super Earth can consist of gas, rocks, water, ice, fire, acid, glass, or diamonds. Scientists haven't yet found a Super Earth with ideal conditions for humans. Not because all planets are bad for life, but because our body has evolved and adapted to Earth only. We don't know much about Super Earths. They contain a massive amount of energy because of their enormous masses, and this energy is released. Therefore, frequent volcanic eruptions and earthquakes occur on many of these planets. Thunderstorms happen there almost every day. And by the way, one day there lasts several times longer than our 24-hour one. Let's imagine you're on the spaceship again, traveling to some super-Earth. So here it is, massive, orange, majestic. You put on a spacesuit, get into a space capsule, and you change your mind. The whole planet resembles a fiery boiling ball. If it has any life, it must be some invulnerable creatures. You're not like that, so you fly away to look for another super-Earth. A couple light years away, that giant ball seems to be a friendly place. Wait, this world is located far from its star. The temperature there is so low that even molecules freeze. Antarctica is like a hot desert compared with this super-Earth. You continue your voyage and finally find a perfect spot. It's three times heavier and twice bigger in size than Earth. It consists of rocks, gases, and possibly water. You descend to the planet on the transport capsule, open the door, and take one step. Your legs are too heavy. Your whole body has gained weight. You feel as if you were carrying a huge box of bricks on your back. You can't even walk a few feet. And the reason for this is gravity. The greater the weight the super-Earth is, the greater its gravitational force becomes. You are pressed to the ground, and your muscles are too weak for this. Also, increased gravity provokes active fluctuations of tectonic plates. Earthquakes and landslides happen on this planet pretty often. The rocky surface here is constantly changing. To live on such a planet, you would need to develop new technology to build houses. You get back into the capsule and fly away, but not too far. The planet's gravity doesn't allow your ship to rise high into the sky. It's like ropes pulling you down. You use all the remaining fuel to overcome the gravity and go beyond the atmosphere. Another problem with such worlds is meteorites. Gravity attracts not only your ship, but also colossal space objects flying by. A giant asteroid can get off its route because of the attraction of the super-Earth. It can hit the planet in the form of a meteor shower, but the falling speed is also faster, so the destruction will be more massive. But the worst thing that can happen to the super-Earth is the stoppage of the planet's core, caused by high pressure. Hundreds of billions of tons of solid rock can squeeze the heart of this world, and the core should always be in motion to perform its primary function, keeping the magnetic field working. Solar storms and cosmic radiation can create severe problems for all life on the surface. On Earth, these storms disrupt the operation of electronics and affect human health. This happens even if small holes appear in the magnetic field. And what would happen if all the protection disappears? All aboard! This is the Intergalactic Cruiser. The destination on your ticket is a tour of the local group of galaxies, featuring the large and small Magellanic galaxies, the Orion Nebula, the Andromeda and Triangulum galaxies, and a few surprises in between. Tickets, please.
Be advised you may experience a slight tingling sensation as we rev into hyperspace. The ship and everything in it is going through a dimensional phase change. It's nothing to worry about. The tingling passes quickly. Now, passengers, as we head toward galactic latitude 180 degrees north, as Terrarians are accustomed to calling it, our first main item of interest will be an intense star-forming region known as M42, the Orion Nebula. But first, a special treat by the captain that's not on the advertised itinerary. The Horsehead Nebula. It's off to the port side. That's left for you Aggies. Its designation is M43. The newborn star at the top of the horse's head has a strong solar wind that is deforming the shape of the nebular cloud. Get a good look at it now, because in a few thousand years, those gases will be completely blown away by the star-like nebula that made our sun. Yep, long gone, except for the nebular gases captured by Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, and Neptune. Okay now, one of our junior explorers asks a question. What is the M in M42 and M43? Well, young lady, the M stands for Messier. Pronounce Messier, not Messier, as in, is your room messier than mine? (laughs) Charles Messier, I mean Messier to be precise, was a French astronomer in the 18th century. He published a catalog of 110 fuzzy objects as seen through an early telescope. The Horsehead Nebula is number 43 on his list. We'll see more M's as we continue our tour. Heads up, we're coming to the Orion Nebula. The gases in the nebula may seem less colorful than you expect. That's because we're accustomed to seeing long-exposure telescopic photos and enhanced photos designed to highlight the different gases in the nebula. May I suggest using the pair of tinted glasses that come with your onboarding packet if you want to heighten your experience. In we go! Now, it's a good thing we are in hyperspace. As we approach the trapezium star cluster in the center, the bright star, Theta C, sends out a solar wind at 5 million miles an hour. It sculpts the whole cloud of gas and dust, creating shock waves that compress nearby stars. Theta C is a megastar, 200,000 times brighter than the Sun. It will go supernova in about a million years. I won't be around then. Oxygen, hydrogen, and sulfur glow in ionized states like a fluorescent light bulb. Oxygen blue, hydrogen red, some green and sulfur, and dust glow as yellow-orange. As we pull out of the Orion Nebula and rise high above the galactic plane, the spiral arms of the Milky Way are visible. Our sun, which you cannot distinguish from this height above the galaxy, is in the Orion Spur that lies between the outer Perseus arm and the inner Sagittarius arm. Notice the center of the Milky Way contains a bright magnetic bar that plays an essential part in star formation. Over 70% of nearby galaxies include magnetic bars. It's a sign of a mature galaxy. Only 20% of distant galaxies contain magnetic bars in their cores. Which reminds me, passengers, the juice bar is now open. Our H1 server will take your orders. Now, that's the Andromeda galaxy far, far out to the port side. But may I call your attention to the many dwarf galaxies, over 40 of them, that populate our galactic neighborhood. We're heading to one now. 
The Large Magellanic Cloud, LMC to astronomers, is an irregular dwarf satellite galaxy of the Milky Way, containing about 30 billion stars with a dynamic star-forming region called the Tarantula Nebula, which we will be cruising through shortly. Of course, if there is a large Magellanic Cloud, there must be a small Magellanic Cloud, SMC. And there it is, below and to the left of the LMC. The Milky Way will eventually ingest both dwarf galaxies. Some prefer the word accreted, but the result is the same. If you use your tinted glasses again, you can see that the LMC has stripped away a tremendous amount of gas from the SMC, as they have interacted gravitationally over millions of years. Hey, I know all about gas! Now we're heading out of the Milky Way to a distance of about 50 kiloparsecs. That's 50,000 parsecs, or about 163,000 light-years. So, what's a parsec? No, it's not slang for pair of socks. A parsec is about 3.26 light-years. A light-year is about 5.88 trillion miles. The word parsec is a combination of two words, parallax and second. Parallax is the shift an object seems to make when viewed from two different perspectives. Looking at an object with your left eye and then your right eye, you'll see the object appear to shift. That's parallax. When an astronomical object is photographed with the Earth on one side of the Sun and then again six months later on the other side of the Sun, the shift is measurable in degrees of arc, or minutes of arc, or seconds of arc, down to milliseconds of arc. That's a parsec, a parallax of one arc second, which turns out to be 3.26 light years. Hey, what about a Joan of Arc? That's how you measure distances in France. <laughs> Meanwhile, since you can't measure a light year with a ruler or a tape measure, parsecs are the scientific way of telling the distance to a star or intergalactic object. The greater the parallax, the closer the object is. The smaller the parallax, the farther away it is. Now, straight ahead in the heart of the Tarantula Nebula is the R136 star cluster. Within a distance of one light year, there are over 40 stars each with a mass over 50 times that of the Sun. Wow! Comparatively, there isn't a single other star within four light years of our home star, Sol. And that's a good thing. You can see Supernova 1987A at about 2 o'clock high. A blue giant star, 100,000 times brighter than the Sun, experienced a core implosion, resulting in a Type II supernova 100 million times brighter than the Sun. It has left behind a neutron star, clouded in dust and gas, and a wildly spectacular display of fireworks. Now, 1987A in the Large Magellanic Cloud is the closest supernova to Earth since 1604, which happened in the Milky Way about 20,000 light-years from Earth. It was visible in the daytime for about two weeks, or so. After 1987A went supernova because it was a blue giant star, Speculation has increased that the blue giant star Rigel, the footstar of the constellation Orion, might go supernova in the not-too-distant future, or already has gone supernova. Rigel is approximately 860 light-years from Earth, so anything that happens to Rigel would take about 860 years before it would be noticed on Earth. 
Supernova 1987A ejected the heavy elements like cobalt, nickel, and iron and lighter silicates into the Tarantula Nebula, where they will form the basic building blocks of stars and planets. Our server is now offering space-themed snacks. May I recommend the Jupiter Cotton Candy Puffs for the children on board? Aww. Remember, I know all about gas. Our next stop is the Andromeda Galaxy and environs. Notice its halo as we leave the Milky Way and its 300 billion stars behind. As many as 150 globular clusters reside in the galactic halo. Did you know that humans are real space people? You were born in space. Heck, even I was born in space. We were all born in space. But for humans to be here on Earth, so many conditions have to be precisely correct that it's highly improbable that we even exist. But we do. First, we, and any other space creatures who might be out there, have to live on a planet orbiting a yellowish-white star. Not a red star or a blue star. Not a blue star, because they burn out too quickly. In a few million years, there wouldn't be time for evolution to do its relatively slow magic and produce intelligent beings. Blue stars also tend to swell up and turn red when they collapse and explode. It makes it highly unlikely that any civilization could prosper near a blue star. Red stars, which are by far the most numerous kind of stars, don't seem like good prospects for intelligent civilizations to orbit around either. Red stars are so cold and so dim that a planet that could grow a civilization must orbit very closely to the red star, which would expose the planet to intense, deadly X-ray radiation. So, though red stars are the most numerous and appear to have many planets orbiting them, red stars are a no-go for hosting intelligent, civilized life like our own. That leaves the yellowish stars, about 10% of all stars. However, an important fact must be met before considering the possibility of intelligent life living around a yellowish star. That fact is that the yellow star must be a third-generation star. Only third-generation stars will contain sufficient chemical diversity to sustain advanced life forms. Each time a star explodes, heavier, more complicated elements are created. The explosion expelled these elements and eventually found their way into a nebula. Gravity within the nebula will gradually form the next generation of stars, and so on. Our bodies need calcium for our skeletons and teeth. Our brains need zinc to help create the electrochemical signals that make us move, feel, and think. Our blood needs iron. Therefore, our bodies need to have formed around a third-generation star, and a yellow one. Amazingly, Earth has all the different elements in the universe, all 94 naturally occurring ones, from hydrogen to plutonium. Maybe that's why we're here. And we have to thank our third-generation yellow dwarf sun for that. Why yellow? Because yellow stars burn very steadily by nuclear fusion, without significantly changing brightness over billions of years. If our sun became just 6% brighter or dimmer, Earth would become too hot or too cold to sustain civilized life. Fortunately, Earth is in the habitable zone around the sun. The habitable zone is where liquid water can exist on a planet. But that brings us to the second condition necessary for intelligent life to live in space, the planet itself. Recent studies with the Kepler telescope have shown that one quarter of all yellow dwarf stars may contain Earth-like planets in the habitable zone around yellow dwarf stars. That figure is somewhat debatable. 
it might be as few as one out of every 33 yellow dwarf stars. But that's still a lot of planets orbiting yellow stars in habitable zones. So let's consider the second essential component for intelligent life in space, the planet itself. The planet that would bear intelligent civilization must have many particular characteristics that aren't easy to come by individually, and even more rare to find in combination. Most importantly, the planet must have protection against the star it's orbiting. Because stars shine by nuclear fusion in their cores, gas in the outer shell of the sun, called the corona, gets blown off into space in what's called the solar wind. Our United States satellites take constant readings of the force of the solar wind, which is mainly electrified, ionized, hydrogen nuclei, along with a smattering of atomic nuclei from the many other elements found in the sun. It's not the atmosphere that protects Earth, it's the magnetosphere that stops, or deflects, the dangerous solar wind, causing aurorae when the solar wind is attracted to Earth's magnetic poles and electrifies the air of the upper atmosphere like a fluorescent bulb. Without a magnetosphere surrounding it, any planet, even those in habitable zones, would be toasted by a constant rain of ionized hydrogen nuclei from its star. A planet with life on it must have a magnetosphere strong enough to deflect the solar wind. Not every planet in our solar system has a magnetosphere. The gas giant planets, Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, and Neptune, have magnetospheres, but gas planets cannot have civilizations. Of the solid worlds, only Earth and Mercury have magnetospheres, and Mercury is too weak to stop the solar wind because of its closeness to the Sun. Another protective shield that keeps the Earth safe from the Sun is its atmosphere. The atmosphere is about 300 miles thick, with most of it concentrated within just 10 miles of the Earth's surface. The atmosphere protects life on Earth from both the Sun's ultraviolet UV radiation and X-rays. The gas, ozone, which is three oxygen atoms bound into a large gas molecule in the upper atmosphere, blocks most of the Sun's UV radiation from reaching the ground. The planet Mars, whose atmosphere is 1,000 times thinner than the Earth's, has no ozone, and the Sun's ultraviolet emissions have totally irradiated its surface. That's it for today. So hey, if you pacified your curiosity, then give the video a like and share it with your friends. Or if you want more, just click on these videos and stay on the bright side.